First of all, shout out to us for just making it work on a first try. I got to say that because that don't happen very often. And number two, shout out to one of my favorite brown guys <laughs> in New York hardcore. I am. I am 10. This is my Sicilian skin showing through. I know because, you know, originally I said he could be Puerto Rican. He could be Greek. He could be Sicilian, whatever. He's browner than everybody else. <laughs> Whatever he's down with, I want in. Anyway, what's up? First of all, I'm glad to get you on here, number one, because I've been wanting to get you for a while. But I, I know you were going through the podcast Meat Grinder. So I was letting you get put back together before I got you on. And um, but yeah, what's up? I'm glad I, I'm glad we could make it happen, especially lately. There's been a lot of real life shit going on. So. Man, adult life is for the fucking birds, dude. It's like it's like between you know all the all the adult shit happening in the world at large, and all the stuff happening just personally with everybody. It's like, yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm sitting back and I and I I look at the fact that I you know, all of us are somewhat, all of us in hardcore are somewhat fucking damaged in some way, right? From some childhood shit or some whatever it is, and family problems, health problems, this and that, right? Everybody comes together mm -hmm. and we found salvation in this music. But, you know, I still think of myself back then as like, you know, the angry. I mean, even the name Blackout came from like, you know, my whole like philosophy of no light, no hope, no future, right? <laughs> yeah, All yeah, that, yeah. Like, you know, I never knew that. I was going to ask you where the blackout come from. So that's good. I'm glad you answered. You that. know, and it was just like, and it was just negative. And the original name for blackout was actually Crossfire. Um, but wow, I figured that since I didn't own a gun, <laughs> and I was not going to fucking fake it, and I wasn't going to like pretend to be overly fucking hard, I kind of turned it more introspective. And it was blackout, but like we all found we all found each other. But still, for the life of me, as a fucking middle-aged motherfucker, I am trying to figure out what the hell I was so goddamn mad at when I had everything that that an eighteen-year-old kid could fucking want. <laughs> you know what? You know what makes the hardcore kid um, a special power? You know, us like the X Men. That's what I say. A hardcore kid is yeah. when you see a real hardcore kid. It don't matter where you are. It's literally like. They uh, X Men. He shows you, you know, a secret power. You wink it at each other, cause there's a difference. We a, a metal fan could walk by a guy with a Slayer shirt. It doesn't. You could have zero in common with that dude, but Slayer. Right. You walk by a hardcore kid. The guy got an AF shirt on. The guy has a Warzone shirt on. The guy has a Raw Deal shirt on. You could kind of pinpoint his whole life yeah. even more. Like not everything, but it goes from this. To this real quick. Yep. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, and that's the special part of it. Like that, that's the crate. But what I think that um what we were at, what what hardcore gave us was we found something early to focus that uh, that anger that we just have as teens for no reason. Oh, 
Oh, I, I agree with that a thousand percent. Like, you know, I was always interested in doing and creating. Like, as a even as a little kid, before I started out this, I was always drawing. Like, I wasn't the healthiest of kids. Yeah. Um. So I found a lot of a lot of things in my own head, right? So I found reading. I found drawing. I found like science. I found like other things where like I could make my brain work, because my body was not really freaking making up for it. And, you know, it was interesting because when, you know, I, I, I think I got out of hardcore, that spirit of DIY, but that spirit of DIY is really kind of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I remember teaching myself for where the wild things are graphic design. I didn't know shit about graphic design. I learned how to do, and this was before fucking Photoshop or fucking. Oh, the hard way, yeah. It was that shit, that paste up shit. You got to put the rubber cement on the back of stuff. You got to make sure it's right because if it's fucking Fakakta on the friggin' layout, it's Fakakta forever. You know, I still look at the back of where the wild things are. I don't, I have a copy framed on my wall, but I can't take it down. But if you look at the back of the first few editions of where the wild things are, there's things that are a little bit like this. And I still look at that. And I love it because it's imperfect. But I'm also like, fuck, how, how did that happen? Because I spent hours. I know. Hours on that shit. I know how that goes. I tell people all the time, you know, um, my old demo for my first band, same shit. And I had sent it to you. And I got to say, out of everybody, you were the only motherfucker that wrote back and fucking answered me. So back in the day, um, boys and girls and everything in betweens, we used to have to do a thing with our new music, not just put it on Bandcamp. You literally had to give it to people or mail it. So obviously you would mail you mailed it to every label you can. And, and you, you know, you never expected anything. But I actually uh, Bill actually had fucking wrote us back and, you know, um, gave us. I, I don't remember what, but it was a. Uh, Kind of like, yo, you guys, it's, it's cool. Keep working on your music. Kind of like, you know, it was a, it was a positive, but it was we were psyched through like, yo, we didn't expect you to fucking answer, you know. And um, but I'm, when not I, saying, but, I'm not saying that I did that for everybody. <laughs> there, was, there was some shit where I would get like bad. I mean, it's not just hardcore bands that would write to me, right? Yeah, I would get like singer songwriter shit, and I will tell you the PO box. This is before I became more uh, conscious about the environment. I will say that <laughs> is that you could tell how much I liked the demo by how long it took me to wing it out of my car. <laughs> oh, we used to give it the uh, we used to call it the there was a something test. We used to see catch air or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. but it spiral. Yeah, yeah. But now, so now that you said what we were just talking about maybe fucking think about how not just hardcore but any uh sub um heavy extreme group what it gave us if it was metal or you know the oil the punk or the hardcore whatever it be it was for the you know not everybody was able to make the football team not everybody was able to make the wrestling team and have a, a place where they could be creative and also get their frustrations out and somebody would listen to them right so where do we fall? You know, the hardcore kid had to make his own place, you know, find yeah. its own place. But that's what I tell people. I was like, you know, I, I think it's like um, that was the advantage we had for being broken. We learned how to use that broken. And we did something like, listen, I'm a hip hop kid. I grew up hip hop first. Hip hop doesn't leave the corner. 
It goes from the corner and either you make the big thing or that's it. It wasn't a scene where you went to hip-hop shows every week. The average kid in the hood never sees hip-hop live. He sees a kid freestyling on the corner, but there's no live music in that in that lifestyle. None. I'll be the first to tell you. I Hardcore is the well, I thought everywhere had a show. Even metal doesn't have that. You know what I mean? Metal has battle of the bands, or you got to get on a national act. Hardcore has from kindergarten all the way to college at every level of playing. Because you have those DIY shows, you have the basement shows, you have, and it all goes back to that entrepreneurship. You have yeah. someone who wants to put on a show. Yeah. Like Josh from Trustkill used to put on friggin' shows in his basement. Yeah. Right. As a, as a as a kid before he even started started the label, and like these are the kind of things where, like, that's why I always say that hardcore gave that sense of entrepreneurship to me. Because, you know, I wanted to participate in the scene. I wanted to be a part of something and I didn't want to just be a consumer. Right. Yeah. I wanted to I wanted to use whatever, you know, talents that I had to help perpetuate this music, this scene that I that I really loved. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to have friends who were in some solid bands. Right. Like, you know, I grew up with Carl from Killing Time. I've now been yeah. friends with him for over fucking 50 years. Crazy. I never thought I, that could even possibly come out of my mouth. Yeah, right? It's right? insane. Right? Um, you know, all these guys who were part of that, like, original, like, breakdown, raw deal, you know, um, the guy, the guys in Uppercut, and that it kind of then extended out to Outburst through, through Anthony. Anthony was a great social kind of yeah. because he brought a lot of people together. And that's where the kind of like Yonkers Astoria, you know, Yonkers, Yonkers Queens bond happened. Yeah. I met you from sitting in Anthony's fucking living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so you were Yonkers and and who was New Rochelle? Any of you guys were New Rochelle? Jeff was New Rochelle. That's what it was. All right. So I remember it was New Rochelle, Yonkers. So that was, that was the. Yonkers, New Rochelle, White Plains was really kind of where everybody came from. But we would all drive to these different, like, few record stores around the area. And there was a very few people, you know, you had, like, Vinyl Solution in Portchester. You had um, Mad Platters and then Rock and Rex and Yonkers. You had the Record Stop in Hartsdale. And those were, that was the kind of circuit that we would go to every Saturday. And we'd see all these people. And that's where the guy behind the counter, in this case, this guy named Tony, who worked at a number of these stores, was really kind of like the Pied Piper of these these fucking crazy people who ultimately became my friends. I knew Carl from when I was a little kid. Our parents were friends, blah, blah, blah. But like we met Drago because Tony forced Drago to apply for breakdown. He knew Drago was playing the thing. He's like, dude, these guys are playing. They need a drummer. They need a a new drummer. You know, and he kind of like pushed everybody into it. So without that guy Tony, um, none of the none of the none of that whole scene would ever have crazy fucking happened. And it's crazy because it was this like group of people that was probably like twenty people strong. My friend, you know, Big Mike. Um, you know, uh, there was like another, you know, just a number of people around us. This guy named Jim Gibson, who was another record store guy who I actually started 
put out where the wild things are with he contributed that was with him he was with the early on yeah i would see his yeah. name and he recently you know before richie um he passed away now almost two years ago which is unbelievable mm. you know and you know all these people meant, meant a lot to me you know over the years let, let me ask you so you grew up with carl since you're a little kid now when you say all right you grew up with him obviously you, you grew up were you always tight throughout the years or like you know what i mean because some people say they grow up but yeah you know Oh, he lived down the block, and, and throughout the years, you reconnected. He lived about a mile from me. Our our fathers were both World War II vets, so they bonded. Yeah. We would go on family vacations together. Oh, okay, so you were always like I was always at his house. Like we did all the stupid shit that kids would do with the other neighborhood, like the little rascals stuff. I mean, like a cousin. So he was like a cousin, like basically, you guys were. Close cousin or brother, honestly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. I have no brothers, right? I yeah. have no siblings. So I'm an only kid. He's an only kid. So, and our parents were very, you know, always hung out like on the, you know, various. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was like we were there and we went to the same fucking nursery school, which is where our parents met. We went to the same fucking public school in Yonkers where we met. We went to the same middle school along with Paul Bear. Oh uh, man! Imagine uh, that fucking that. I want to see that that picture, that a uh, yearbook picture. It's as expected. Like all <laughs> of us kind of look very similar, you know. In, in, I seen a, a picture of him. He looked like a cute little mean, angry Polish boy. You know, <laughs> the fucking assessment. The first day that I met Paul, and I, I've said this other places, but I think you'll 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 love it if you haven't heard it. Is I'm standing there and. I'm wearing, Carl's probably wearing a Kiss Army shirt. I'm wearing something like an ACDC something. Yeah. And they're like, you know, two little kids, you know, in literally 1980, but it might as well have been 1975 because Yonkers <laughs> evolves more slowly than other parts of the country. Um, or at least definitely slower than the city. And, uh, and so we're standing there and Paul comes up, you know, um, you know, this this bulldog looking kid with these cheeks. Right. But he's like, you know, and he still had the same kind of voice, which was fucking hilarious. <laughs> and he shows us a picture of the like the plasmatics record where they're in the pool. Yeah. Um, and it's like, this is the best band in the world. And I'm like. I never saw like some chick on a record cover with tape over her nipples or anything or whatever. Yeah, like, what the fuck? Stocks and I was like, wow, this shit is cool. <laughs> and then one of the kids we were standing with, who's now like a surgeon, if I remember correctly from looking at his profile on Facebook, but he was like, started waving his finger at him, like, like saying, ah, that's disgusting. <laughs> And Paul grabbed his finger, like twisted it. Ah, yeah. Around. So I was like, and like that was perfect. a foreshadowing of how my entire life was going to be. And perfect for 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 things. But yeah, that was the first time I met Paul. And then he sat behind Carl in Mr. Kleinrock's social studies <laughs> And I just remember him like he was he was like a terror to everybody in 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 the class. A shit was, terror. Yeah, he was, but he really was. Like he would, like when he would sit behind people, like he would just take them by the head and throw them off their desk. <laughs> so, there's, there, there is. I can convinced there's something in the water 
that the, made all definitely. somewhat fucking touched in the head from the, from wherever it is. Let me ask you this. All right, Mo, like I'm I'm gonna guess, and just from hearing, and usually it was usually this the the the, the pecking order of getting into this music at, in in that era. You were either a rock guy listening to what was on the radio, a lot of the regular rock that was on, you know, on the radio, or you were already into metal or getting into some type of extreme metal. And then somebody exposes you to the next thing, which is whatever it may be, where you were, you were a metal guy, a rock guy first or metal, a rock guy, then metal guy, then what, what was your your trap before you transitioned into what you are today? <laughs> Before a, the operation, yeah. Where got, were you? I got a couple of years on you, so I started right. So I was born in '67. All right, right. So I started listening to what was then hard rock, but the first band that I ever loved was fucking Kiss because I saw the Paul Lind Halloween special in like Everybody. was '74. Where you know he's like the center square and for you know, Hollywood squares, yeah. like, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But like they had this Halloween thing that he was a big deal on, and they played. I think it was Detroit Rock City. It was lip sync, but all of a sudden it was kind of like the explosions, the demon, the whole fucking nine. Hell yards. yeah, the spectacle. Hell yeah. Plus the shit was catchy, right? And Destroyer was their fucking. I I consider it to be probably the best record. And so I just, my whole school, it was literally like every kid overnight wanted to be fucking Gene, Paul, Peter, or Ace. Yeah. Right? And I don't know, even know how many fucking Halloween costumes we had where oh, we, we I had remember. rival fucking demons and rival fucking cats and rival fucking spacemen. It was like, it, it, <laughs> it was like the sharks and the jets. Yeah. They were like, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. A lot of flammable um, kiss um, costumes oh, back then. Yeah. Oh, Completely flammable, and like, and then the, the horrible masks that you couldn't breathe in. Can't breathe a rubber band that would break. You can you get hit by a car because you can't see shit. Oh, forget it. That shit. Yeah. yeah, and 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 you got it, and it was like wearing a garbage bag too. So yeah, I know it was. People don't know now. They got shit that looks like you get from Hollywood. Oh yeah, they fucking put muscles in the incredible <laughs> costumes now. Like they sew fucking abs into the shit. I know it's amazing. So you're you're getting all right. So you're so you're listening. All right, the, the rock. What's on the radio like that? When you choose, what's the transition? How you start transitioning? This and then it's like ACDC. Then it's like Black Sabbath, and then it's the record store guy, man. That he's that's the always store, and it's the new wave of British heavy metal. So my first ever big rock concert was Iron Maiden and Quiet Riot. Wow, at Madison Garden. Wow. It was me, Carl, and this guy, Andy Messenger, who we still actually go to metal shows with. Wow, that's dope. Like, from, like, we, we always have, like, a, a reunion. I, um, yeah, we went to see Judas Priest's 50th. Uh, wow, that's great. And they kill it. They oh, kill yeah. it. Yeah, they kill it. They're fucking great. And that actually, last record they put out was actually really, really good. And, you know, it's kind of funny that we, we you know, we were into Priest, and then all of a sudden Metallica comes out. Mm, game changer. Fucking, it changes the game for a lot of people. I think Venom and Metallica, right? Where I know this because 
my brother, rest in peace. That's the same era as you. Exact came up same way, same band. There was the same pickings. It was the Venom, Hellhammer, the, the Celtic Frost, the Discharges, the GBHs. You yeah, know. it was like a continuum, right? Because how far was Venom really from Discharge or GBH? And but the thing that got me was. I was still buying like your fucking regular metal records. In addition to getting into like some of the heavier shit, like possessed and like whatever, like that whole thrash. Yeah. I was still buying like the Ronnie James Dio record when it came out, basically out of impulse, right? Oh, but like by the time the the record Sacred Heart came out, it was just kind of like they were getting more poppy with more keyboards, and I didn't like it, and I was just getting more, you know adolescent angry at the time right you you know you yeah and it didn't it didn't hit me so it was it was the fact that the guy at the record store said you don't want to buy that you want to buy black flag mm. and he gave me actually he didn't give it to me he, i mean but he recommended damage the fucking you know the first lp from 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 black flag and i was like Holy fuck, listen to this. And it was in that back of the record store where, like, so metal was, like, here on the store. And then the punk rock session was, like, all along the back. And it was, like, kind of scary because, like, they had the Kennedy's cover, you know, like, the Fresh Food for Rotting Vegetables cover. And, like, I think they had, like, like the, the penis landscape from the Giger penis landscape. Yeah. Like, or, like, or whatever, or from the DKs already, like, on display and i'm like because you don't know when you're like yeah 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 no for sure sure shit and i was like oh should i listen to it can i even bring it home would my mom go fucking crazy and back then it was an issue people don't understand now whatever back then to show up with a fucking upside down cross or some shit that was insane now it's like you see you know paris hilton with upside down cross shirt or whoever's hot right now it's nothing it's all commonplace i mean colored hair was commonplace you couldn't leather spikes like any sort of like punky haircut like you would be have to prepare to like throw down i mean i lived in super fucking guidoville yeah i mean yonkers was very guido i lived basically in kind of like a good fellas suburban neighborhood where th- it was all the kids of a lot of friggin mafia b-listers of course right? yonkers up there is all yeah. was you know guidos yeah and so it's kind of like, you know, they're listening to their fucking Stacy Q or whatever bullshit. There. Which I love. Oh, hold on. Which oh. I love freestyle music. But yes, <laughs> keep going. But, you know, you got the IROC, everybody with the posing and the freaking teal t- yeah. t-shirts and fucking capizios and fucking pleated pants like to go to the fucking grocery store. You know, it was just a different thing. And I, like, like. I'm just saying, but my family didn't play the whole like super fucking Ginzo game. Yeah. And it was like, so, so it was just kind of, it was always at odds because we were the guys. The other bands that, that came from my town were Mortician, Will Rain. Mm. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Um, he actually used to work for uh, delivering flowers for a floral. <laughs> um, so we used to call him the Morbid Florist. <laughs> um, and then I went to high school with, and, and we still see him occasionally, me and Carl still see him occasionally, Ross from Immolation. Wow, that's that, that's crazy. That's you know, Ross, and, Ross and me and Carl went to high school together. He was a couple years younger. 
But like we would sit around, this is again during the thrash period, where we would sit around like behind the movie theater, drinking like eight ounce beers, listening to fucking music. Well, everybody else was like, you know, trying on their trapezoidal breath, uh, you know, belt, and the friggin' girls who had their hair in the banana clips and shit like that. Yeah, I you remember know? all world, and that's what so come back to the city too, because I found no, there was nothing cultural about fucking Yonkers that I could even remotely like besides the record stores and my friends. So you get, so you get your taste of Black Flag. Where was the first show you you you? you ventured to was it a local one or did you go to the city and what was it no the, hardcore well, show or gritty show you know not, that wasn't the big rock show so two things very quickly first thing was first club show was um jesus christ um was at a club in yonkers called the rising sun which we called the rising slum yeah, now uh, it's now a, a, a Z-list or it was a Z, turned into a Z-list gentleman's establishment. Um, but then it was like the last vestige of that Twisted Sister kind of like rock scene kind of places. And um, and we, we saw T.T. Quick there, me and Carl. We were 18 years old. T.T. Quick. Seven, seven, yes, T.T. Quick. Um and it was the drummer from Nuclear Assault. But it was actually, they put out an EP on Megaforce. It was actually pretty good. Um, I didn't like the album, but the, the EP was great. That was my first ever show. But my first real hardcore show, probably two, three years later, in 85, 86, I think it was 86, summer of 86 was really when I started officially being hardcore. And I yeah. my Catholic school mullet um, was, uh, was an AF man. Mm. Where I remember walking down, me and Carl, I think Rich might have been with us. I don't remember who it was. No, it was definitely, it was Don Angelili from Breakdown and Mark Sisto from Maximum Penalty because all of us went to school together and we were kind of like, like that was the kind of core group of people who we would go to shows with. And it was AF and, I, and there, it's a blur because I kind of don't remember but it might have been AF and the Crumb Suckers. It might have been AF and Damage. It might have been AF and Carnivore. I don't really remember what show it was. All I remember it was Jammed. And the first person that I ever saw in front of a hardcore show was Big Charlie. Ah, of course. The biggest black dude surrounded by savages. That makes Lawrence Taylor look like a fucking midget. I know. I know. Crazy. Uh, Rest in peace, Charlie. Yeah, man. And he was such a wonderful, he was a great dude. He saved me from getting my ass beat at the Ritz. Like friggin a lot of people he saved. He saved a lot of people. He did. He did. And it was the, the bouncers that were going to the freaking the, the cop at the fucking front door was going to throw me down the stairs because <sighs> I wised off to him. So apparently he didn't like that. So yeah. what do you do? throw a freaking <laughs> exercise down the stairs? And Charlie's like, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually yeah. sat, that show was Motorhead, and I actually sat out front, and that's the first night I met uh, Scott Ebanks. Wow, yeah, wow, early, yeah, he was around early. Scotty's been around very early. We we sat around, we sat around eating freaking hot dogs from the hot dog vendor in the pouring rain while Motorhead played because I had to wait for my fucking girlfriend to get out, who decided to go into the show without me. Thank you. <laughs> ah, thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. I remember 
Same shit. My first show was was um um rest in pieces, and I think Iceman at CB. Oh yeah, yeah. So I got I got I never went to a live. You know, again, my brother. I used to beg him take me to show, and he said, yeah, yeah. When you get older, and then he went to the army. He never took me, so I went on my own with my boy. Oh, you went same, alone? Well, well, my my boy was a guy who would go to shows, but he was like a not a regular hardcore kid. He would go to some shows, but he wasn't like a regular. So he goes. I'm, Y'all take it. I go, you got to take me. I heard rest in pieces. I got to see them. And he took me. And I remember just walking down from the train and seeing everybody outside. Yeah. And, and I was like, fuck. Like, oh, shit. The, the other person that we saw first going down there was um, Troy. Remember oh, she- I remember. Yeah, Troy, of course. And Troy had on this fucking outfit where it was all safe. Tools. From head to head to head to toe, and he was carrying a fucking like I think he had a, like a thigh bone of like a yeah. Th- that, that's what my brother used to say. He he would have bones like yeah, tools was, and bones yeah. hanging off his off his clothes. He was like all fucking punk rock Fred Flintstone or some shit. Oh, crazy! He'd come down and he'd be like, and he did not have a friendly fucking vibe at all. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Bulldog he became super skin after that. You remember he was like super skin after that. Super, he was fucking super intense. But I was just like, in, in the same way, it was like a little daunting, right? Because I came from suburbia where it's like, I knew Guidos, but I didn't know anything about really like the city in that way. And, and like all these different kinds of people wearing all this clothes that I like, didn't know about and then everybody seemed to just be fucking wild and while i felt a little intimidated by it i also felt it was like the first place where i could be comfortable yeah yep it was this very like twofold thing yeah yeah no for sure i got down there yeah for sure it be i tell people you could oh it almost feels like um what your siblings would be to you you know you you so you're close enough, but they know everything about you. That's why you could be yourself because they seen you, you know, at your most humiliating. You could be yourself. You could eat the the nasty shit you eat or do the stupid shit, you know. And it's whatever. It you could be yourself, and that's what that, uh, you know, at least when I when I same thing for me at a hardcore show, what you were able to do is like, wow, you could be anything. I used to be like, there's a punk rock guy there. There's a guy with the morgue. There's a skinhead dude. Over there, that almost looks like a half a racist dude. But there's a guy over there who's a Rasta. There's a white dude with dreadlocks there. There's a black skinhead. I used to be like, wow, anything goes. Yeah. But I was like, that's kind of dope. To me, it was like um, Mad Max or one like the bar yeah. At, yeah. in Star Wars. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's totally true. It is totally the cantina, like in that way, because you get all sorts of people and it's people who are too smart too crazy, yeah. too whatever, too damaged to fit into like the yeah. normal thing. But, you know, honestly, if I didn't have this in a weird way, I don't know what I would, what I, where I would have gone with, with yeah. all the energy that I have. For sure. For sure. I'd be in jail or dead. You know, the, the typical story, listen, literally, going to hardcore shows, right? As I, early, you know, I was a skin already, but early on, I would carry a machine gun to school. You know, we had beef with, with other kids. Like, I, I, I literally carried a Mac 10 machine gun in my school. And it wasn't to be like, oh, to be tough. It's what I had. And I said, I'm not going to be a victim. That's what I said. 
But I remember I would have done something back then. Now I look back, I, I can't think of what an idiot I was. And thank God I didn't. I would have still been in there because I would have done something. But and my whole thing wasn't so much. It wasn't so much for a rep. It was more. That was the neighborhood I lived in. And it was a, a race war at the time. And I was like, I'm not going to. Yeah, it was blacks against Latins. And they were cutting each other in the hallways of the school with razor blades in their face. They were like, it was really vicious. Long story short, I was already doing my little street thing. I was young, wild, but I happened to have a machine gun that I had. <laughs> I ended up carrying that with me. People that really know me back then, they know. I had that for months because I was more like, I'm not going to be a victim. If somebody didn't catch me at that, I'm lighting everybody up. This is how I was thinking. And I was never the crazy kid. I was never, I was always who I like, who I am now. I did like a little of the excitement of wildness, but thank God that was just the youngness, you know, that age, that anger. And you know what happened? I kind of got through certain things, even early mad ball. Me and Freddie were really wilding out in the early days. Like we were doing side hustles on the road to make ends meet. And then it got to a point we let, we said, you know what? Maybe we should chill out because you know what? If one of us goes to jail, we're going to fuck these other guys over who got jobs and going to school like the other dudes in the band. We're like, you know what? Let's give this band shit a try. Then we left that shit and started with the music, you know? I mean, it'll, it, it worked out, but you had the advantage of an escape valve. Yes. And yes. like you're trapped in high school. You're just trapped because you're not going to change fucking schools. Exactly. You're not gonna do this. You're not gonna do that. You're trapped with these fucking, you know, with all with everybody else who you have to be there with, who you didn't choose to be with. Yeah. You know, and then you have to figure out how am I gonna protect myself? Do I always have to fucking yeah. look over my fucking shoulder? Yeah. Like that's what that shit teaches yeah. teaches you in many ways, right? And you know, I don't have that same experience. I'm not <laughs> fucking fake it. But like there, there, there is truth to that universally. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Let me ask you this, because I you said something before that bugged me out. You said kind of officially you would consider yourself the full hardcore transition around 86 or something. Yeah. You say you dropped the fucking the wild things. What, two years later? Yeah. Um, Do you understand how crazy that is? Like you just came into the scene and you guys dropped like kind of what would be like, you know, one of the one of probably two of the greatest compilations in our music ever. It was it was crazy. I mean, think about it. It, it was so creative and I don't even understand where we got this energy because it seemed that time moved a lot slower when you're a lot younger. Yeah, because sure. it was like, OK. You know, you heard somebody was around in 82 and it's 1980, summer of 86. And you're like, oh, my God, they're so old school. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's I true. I have T-shirts that are fucking 20 years old. Uh, I got underwear right now on me that I had on longer than that. <laughs> right. So I go in there and it's like, yeah, this energy is like, you know, so Carl starts the band. Breakdown and Raw Deal, Breakdown Demo came out in fucking a year after Carl started going to shows because he was playing guitar before he he do that. So Breakdown got together, formed, and recorded the demo in 87. Raw Deal's demo came out 88. 
Okay, but now let's slow down because this is the history that I've been talking about and I preach it and I don't even know if I fully got it right. So I want to get it fully right because I want to say, so I got holes I, in my brain. So we'll, all right, no, but you got more of it than I know. So I know it's from the breakdown, breakdown, break, breakup, or uh, a little bit of a beef or a little something happened and then boom. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, fight over, uh, you know, a piece of puss that trickles over. They decide to start a new band, right? Yep. So take me from right there. Who says, okay, yo, let's start something new? Who are the guys starting the new thing? There was the, there was the Great Rift. Yes. And so Don and Jeff went off and continued breakdown. Real quick, before I forget, but stop right there. What you just said, that's exactly when the, the, the world was connected in hardcore for me. This is the moment it's separated with the breakdown into the greatest band ever in hardcore history. But go on. Right. And then Anthony was actually on stage at the last breakdown show because he loved breakdown. He thought breakdown was amazing. So Carl and Drago decided to go their own. Carl, Rich, and Drago decided to go their own way. Mm -hmm. Drago was kind of in play for a minute. But ultimately, he decided that he really loved Carl's songwriting and wanted to be with Carl. Drago's really very musician. -oriented. Yeah. He also wrote a majority of the lyrics in, in Rodeo. Mm, um, and so very introspective, very much of an artist in his in, in his own right. So he liked the way Carl was, Carl was writing. Um, and so they all kind of split off and went went their own way. And they knew that Anthony was there and I think there was a Dwayne some records thing involved there where mm. <clears throat> Dwayne knew that Anthony was looking for another band. And Dwayne was it a guy like who you had in your local area. Dwayne, oh, Dwayne for people who don't know. Yeah, Dwayne was, yeah. Dwayne was from some records. On some City. records, which was the hub for New York hardcore. It was the only place for this was before my time. And basically he you know, connected the dots for everybody for the younger generation. That was the only place you could buy Doc Bartons too. I remember yeah, at one point, ninety nine X. His yeah, his wife owned the main store, and he had a little basically, you yeah, know, giant closet filled with hardcore records. Yeah, and he would be the place where everybody would go, and he was responsible for launching Breakdown. He was responsible for launching Raw Deal. Wow. Um, because he sold shitloads of those fucking cassettes. Yeah. And hundreds and hundreds of breakdown cassettes and raw deal cassettes. So, but so okay, so the breakdown goes, he's playing. So now you're going on all these breakdown runs, right? You're going like, but you know, so that's going on. You, you know, your, your partner in crime is I'm with you. I'm like a hanger on. I'm selling. Yeah. But your boy, you know, your boy, all right, you're going, you're, you're part of that, that whole thing. Now it splits up. So now they say they're going to start something new, right? The thing yep. breaks up. When does, Raw deal come the name and who, who comes up with it, who brings it and when is it? Okay. So how long after that is okay. We got a new band. It's raw deal. I don't know exactly. I think it was Drago that came up with raw deal. Um, I'm almost sure of that it might've been Carl. Um, I don't think it was named after that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in any <laughs> yeah. way. I think that actually raw deal came out after raw deal. Came yeah. Out. Um, but I think it just described sort of poetically the situation that they felt that they were handed. 
they sort of felt that they were handed a raw deal. Raw deal. Ah, that ma- that's dope. That makes even more sense. I never even knew that or even thought like, of it. You play the hand you got, right? And they yeah. got and, and, and raw deal had the card, the 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 the, the card. Let oh. me ask you one other thing before I forget. This always was on my head because my brother used to talk about it, and people forget about it. This is a little bit of Mike Stinkowitz. He played. Oh, yeah. So Mike was in Mike was in the New York Hoods, and basically Anthony just brought him to practice and said he's going to be in the band too. And they were just like, okay. oh, that's how that was. I, I, I heard he had some early songs though, right? Wasn't he a part? Like he was a, he was a good writer, right? He wrote my reason. Yeah. Oh, okay. He wrote the whole enchilada of my reason, and I and he had a hand in writing a lot of songs. Gotcha. But he kind of departed from the whole thing because he got super into like the guns and roses thing mm. and he just didn't want to play hardcore anymore gotcha. he wanted to like take it in a like a, a, a direction yeah. you know and and so he just didn't want to be hardcore as as hardcore as he was like gotcha. he, went wearing, he went from wearing freaking steel toes to wearing literally like glitter lizard lizard skin cowboy <laughs> yeah because people i used to hear about him being an ill songwriter and oh, he and it would get right. forgotten about yeah he's a lovely fucking person he's a great dude solid yeah. as fuck hilarious yeah my brother used to talk about him a lot Mike yeah, Stinger, right. from, i think he played in smegma too right wasn't he in smegma right. with that That's his nickname mike smegma That's mike smegma yeah 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 so but like you know like he was he was terrific. I think he's like a baker now. Every once in a while, there's like a path hard. crossing between all of us, but it's like That's it's hard. never it's never a hundred and ten percent. Like I don't I haven't seen him physically in thirty years. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. I was wondering because that always lingered, and I've and he he's getting forgotten about in history. Oh. But I remember hearing a lot about him. And he was also in the, the band I put out called Crawl Pappy for a while. He wasn't Crawl Pappy. I yeah. didn't know. I didn't know that. So he's not on the EP, um, but he did join Crawl Pappy for the seven inch that John Stanier played drums on. Mm. All right, and let me. Okay, so now Raw Deal. Now, how how far how how quick. Did Raw Deal pop? It had to be right away, right? Because Breakdown was popping, and oh, then. Yeah. It had to be like, boom. It took a long time for Breakdown to get... Breakdown got a lot of love at the Anthrax Club in Connecticut, but they yeah. didn't get a lot of CB's love until almost the very end of the, mm. you know, like on the Mark One lineup. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's when they solidified themselves. But I think Raw Deal's first show was at CB's. I'm not 100% correct. It might have been the Anthrax. It's a little fuzzy the timeline, but that's where that that's where that's where that was. So they got immediate love. You know, Anthony had a zeitgeist around him from being ex-token entry and being yeah. old school in the scene and just knowing everybody. You know, in that way. And then the Breakdown guys. You know, obviously three of the principles from Breakdown being in a band just kind of created this kind of thing where they immediately hit the ground running. They didn't have to ramp up. Yeah. The same place to record the demo. So they knew like everything. Yeah. Everything was, so, yeah. So they kind of followed. It wasn't, it wasn't a plan, but they kind of, yeah. The best elements of what they learned from breakdown and applied it to 
what they were doing with uh, with raw deal than killing time. Now, because I ask you this, because one, you know, obviously your partner, go your good friend was involved for the early, and you were around a lot for the early part of this shit. What did raw deal specifically say? Okay, obviously we're gonna start another band, but we're gonna be a little bit more. Uh, we're gonna try to be a little bit more uh, different than breakdown. Where what was the the idea of raw deal, or just oh we're gonna keep doing the songs we were writing, kind of like a la breakdown, but just it was musical evolution on on the part of the musicians. Drago wanted. I mean, it's really odd for somebody who writes lyrics the way that he did for most of the lyrics for Rodeo. Obviously not my reason. I think Anthony wrote like a couple of songs too, but um but you know for somebody who liked Cat Stevens so much as a as a lyricist, um Drago really and Carl were on a like a a different musician path. You know, and so they just took the kernel of breakdown, the ferocity, but they added this other element to it that, you know, musicianship wise, they were that core group was probably better than. I don't want to disparage Don at all, but he wasn't as prolific or as creative as a songwriter as Carl was. Yeah. And Mike added that other kind of like dynamic to the original stuff. Yeah. And then they were all more willing to accept critique from each other and kind of push the envelope. Gotcha. And 90% of the time it worked. Sometimes it didn't work like with whole lot of nothing on that seven inch that I put it up. And I like that. You know, what was my shit that I think never got the props it deserved. Ah, spend so much time. Yeah, and listen, yeah, look at, look at, look at, so you can see I got a goose pimples. Let me just tell you how many times I bit that riff. I can't tell you how many times I bit that riff. <laughs> Put it like that. Put it like this. Like so much. Bro, that, this is why I asked because, you know, I bit so much. And, you know, that was my band. That and The influence to me it was weird because they had swag without trying to be hip hop. But I know hip hop was an influence. Same Madball lets it out more, but again, Madball was never trying to be a hip hop hardcore band. Obviously, our influences come out, and it's a little bit more out in front. Right. Raw Deal always had that. I always heard hip hop, I heard a swag, and I said they got it, but it's not typical. Okay, give me the hip hop drum beat, stop the guitars, and do the drum break, and then Andy's gonna like rap. No, right. it wasn't that, it was almost like they would even have some rock shit, really rock guitar. Yeah. But it but would make part, sense. That is yeah. entirely a culmination of all of their personalities, right? That's wow. that's the, that was that. They, they there was no pretense about what they were writing. They were writing exactly what they they felt at the time. Now let me ask you, go back with the main one of the main things that the fucking the compilation. Now let me ask you, to do that. Did, when you did that, was that all done in one studio, or you had everybody go to their, their own studios and do? Oh, how did you go I, about that? So. Where the wild things came about because I used to draw and I drew the, you know, the raw deal dealer shirt. Oh, I, you did. You drew that. I never knew that. So I drew that. I drew, there was a, a breakdown sticker that became, Oh, this, the skateboards on my wall and you can't even see it now, but it's the, uh, the, um, the cover of the run and scared record, which is just the, like the King Kong skinhead going through the building. I drew that, that listening to Celtic Frost on fucking Jeff, Jeff Perlin's bed, uh, bedroom 
floor in Sharpie while we were waiting for like to go to <laughs> Fuddruckers or some dumb shit. Right? Yeah, right. Like things that you just do and throw away that you don't think are going to mean anything. I drew the breakdown brick logo too. Yeah. Oh, all right. Damn. I didn't know that. That's the yeah. classics. Well, I wanted to be an illustrator before I got into the, the, the business. And, and it was, it was again, part of my growing up is where I had to entertain myself in my own head. So I drew a lot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, where the wild things are was like, I wanted to contribute to the scene. Like I said, um, I had all this artistic stuff. I taught myself how to do graphic design because nobody was going to teach me. I bought books. I went to this zine store called See Here, um, which was this, which was this, you know, the only place you could buy music magazines. Don't forget, because no internet, you had to go to like places that specialized in music magazines. They had this book, How to Make and Sell Your Own Record, by mm -hmm. Diane Rappaport, and I actually have a copy somewhere sitting in my office still. It's my wow. the first. And I read the thing cover to cover. My friend Jim from the record store put in some money. I put in some money to get the pressing done. And I just started asking my friends, hey, do you have extra tracks? Would you go in? And everybody just gave them to me. That's dope. I, I want to do, do this. And it was almost at the assistance of Carl and Drago that I kind of put this the label together. I was like, I should do a fucking label. And Drago was like, well, why don't you do a fucking label then? Yeah, like, do it, yeah. Now, now, and let me and let me ask you: When you decide now, what, whatever you put up together, did you make your money back then? Yeah, I mean, the the blessing and the curse was that it was so successful out of the gate. Mm, then you need, needed more money to try to make more happen, and then right. that's where the problem. Yeah. Right. And and you know, if you look at any of the shit that I posted, even from when I was when I had my terrible Yonkers accent in that freaking. <laughs> Sick of it all, sick of it all, uh, Gorilla Biscuits. That's a great classic. I know, but I don't wear that. I know where that. You still hear it a little bit, but I still don't know where that fucking accent came from. Um, I, I, I really, it was always being undercapitalized. That was the biggest issue for all these labels. Yeah. And what I said then on that video remains true. How can you hand somebody? $20,000 worth of shit, they tell you you want more, and they're unwilling to pay you for what they fucking owe you. And that was the game back then. Yeah. Crazy. And so they were making the money. They were banking it. They were making the interest on the money they weren't fucking paying you. They were doing other deals with that money. And I'm sitting there freaking holding my schmuckle. Yeah. Waiting for fucking, waiting for, for, for money to come back to repress records. And that was the bane of my existence for the, my entire label life. Hmm. Let me ask you. All right, what what was your 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 biggest hit? Your your biggest hitter? Oh, H2O. H2O was the biggest hitter. So, and let me uh, let me ask you this also. So for the label, so you got the label. You got your your your, your you got your bit now. At what point? Because you are hardcore dude. And even you started because one of those things. Hey, I'm gonna start it because nobody's gonna do it for us. You know, that's what we kind of all do it. But at what point did it become? Or oh, if you remember a certain situation where you're like, because blackout became a big, a big thing, you know, it became, you know, it started putting out stuff, you know, you, you started put, doing big things. In the, in the late 90s, we hit our stride. Okay, mm -hmm. now there had to be a point as hardcore and as for the people and everything, there had to be a point where you had to become a record company. 
and you're like, fuck, because this is a business. This is my business. This is, I, I'm going to fucking lose my livelihood, but now I got to go against, you know, the hardcore rule and I got to pull a record exec move. But obviously you did it because it's your business. Do you remember the moment or during what era, which band era? Was it the, a hardcore era? Was it the, the post stuff? You know, so I, I got my first taste of it because after I started the label, I had a very unique set of I had a very unique set of skills, right? <laughs> I knew That's what she to, said. I knew that I had, I, you know, I'm, you know, I had to. I my particular set of skills is is doing is is, you know, being able to do that stuff. And I knew everything about putting out a record. So between the point when Blackout took off and I had to make it a business, I worked at other record companies. So I was AF's product manager on One Voice. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, heard I, worked, I got a job at Relativity. Killing Time used to take me out there. They used to take me out there whenever they would go visit the label and I would do it so I could go hang out with people. And I would talk to Steve Martin, right. Who did PR there at the time. And he was, you know, you know, just, just got, you know, AF was obviously on hiatus for a while when Roger went away. So Steve got this job doing PR at, at relativity. And then when Roger got out and <clears throat> uh, they were recorded one voice, Steve didn't want to be in the band anymore because he had a career. Um, and I you would go out there and talk to all these guys all the time. Eventually, Howie Abrams left, in effect, and they needed somebody to run the hardcore label. So I was there pretty much every couple of weeks with everybody, and I was such a pain in the ass about trying to collect a check from them that they're like, why don't you just fucking work here? <laughs> well, I did. And I became the product manager for all the metal stuff and all you know and, and others you know and and the the metal stuff and the hardcore stuff so when that video the sick of it all video came out their live video yep. i was product manager for that when it came out mm -hmm. i was a product manager for af's one voice among a bunch of other wow bunch of other records and so i had my first taste of like what the business was like from doing that and then I went to work at a distributor called Caroline where I did marketing and stuff like that. And I used a lot more of my computer skills at that mm -hmm. point to like to, to work there. And, you know, I distinctly remember my first taste of real business was when Sheer Terror decided <laughs> that because they had left me to go to this label maze that put out the first I remember the biohazard. And the guy who ran it just fucking peered off the face of the earth. The record didn't come out. They had no idea what he was. So I decided, fuck it. I'm re-recording half the same songs. And I'm going to put out this Thanks for Nothing record. Sheer Terror, Thanks for Nothing. As soon as I put it out, boom, lawsuit. Mm. Hello, I'm in the fucking music business now. <laughs> now you're in the music business. Then and they got real, yeah. I worked it out. You know, I had to pay some money. Um, the band was not able to collect on a penny from that record ever. So basically like there is no, the band gets never saw a stitch of money from that mm. record, any proceeds mm. whatsoever from the, from the, from the Zoran music record. Yep. Um, but that's the kind of deal that we had to make. And believe me, there was a lot of yelling and screaming on Paul's part. But, oh, you think, but you know, Hey, 
you know, I was not super happy about that shit either because like, I, who the hell wants that kind of fucking headache, dude? Yeah, for sure. And, and so that was my first taste of like, oh, this is real. Yeah. Cause that, yeah. cause it's, it's, you know, this is why I asked because I, I, you know, you know, I've been, I've been in it for a long time, but I also, you know, I also could see sometimes uh, bands uh, live a fantasy also, which they think that, you know, these rules they make up in their head and they think that they're, they're, they're written in stone. How much really quickly, how much you really think, obviously fuck the big, big machine, not because of some hardcore shit and not because is a machine making millions of dollars. It's nothing wrong with none of that. I, I don't like when shit is fabricated, no matter what it is. If you're going to be pop, be pop from jump, go for it. How much as a hardcore dude, now being on the other side of it, how much um, um, hate towards, you know, the whole fuck the big machine, how much is legit, is, is, is what's the word is, um, is is deserved like are we really deserve or do we really deserve to flip on the record company like for 95 percent of the things like bands do it uh, it sounds like a cop-out but i'm just saying it depends and here's how it depends right there is the physics of the music business right there's how royalties are collected mm -hmm. there's how people get paid there's how records get manufactured. Those things are written in process and written in stone, right? They, those are undeniable things that have to happen, right? The way that mechanical songwriting royalties are collected in the United States is adjudicated by the United States government under Section 115 of the Copyright Law, right? That's how that shit works. I do this shit now for actually my job. Um, <clears throat> but... The bands do themselves a disservice, probably in the most part by not understanding that a contract is actually a legally binding agreement and they can't whimsically change their mind once they sign it. And the band members also think that if they don't sign a contract, they're not obligated anymore. But if you have terms on your on your on your desk and you take what's called consideration against that contract, which means anything of value. So say four or five band mem four or five band members sign a co contract and they go into the recording studio. The fifth guy says, no, fuck you. I'm not signing. Oh, they already, it, they already took studio time. Already, they already took studio time. So congratulations. You've signed it by accepting the consideration against your deal. I get it. Yeah. Right. Some people don't kind of get that or they assume that as soon as the contract's over, it's like, ah, that doesn't matter. Well, you don't spend time talking about this unless you intend to adhere to the agreements. And the reason why you talk about it first is so there's no bullshit afterwards. Yeah. Right. You try to get, there's negative things that, that should be talked about prior. What happens if this all goes fucking South? Those are the adult conversations that people don't necessarily have. Bands are also not necessarily as well informed. Like I said about the other physics of the business. You don't have to be a publishing fucking virtuoso and know, know how neighboring rights are collected in fucking Botswana. Fucking understand the basics of how you get paid. And there's two basic rights in music, right? There's a master royalty and there's a songwriting royalty. Those are two different animals handled in two different ways, right? And 
I hear and see a lot of arguments between band members and even band members starting fights over this stuff because they're not educated on where some of this money comes from. Yeah. So sure. the, the biggest problems that I've faced are really misunderstanding of process, misunderstanding of what not adhering to contracts in certain ways um, or woeful disregard for what, a, what, what an agreement actually means. Um, but it's also these kinds of things where, you know, sometimes the bands, sometimes it's just, and sometimes people just argue, right? Sometimes people grow to hate each other and there's nothing you can do about that. Not every human yeah. can love each other despite their hardcoreness, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, there's you you know plenty of bands with beef between band members. Oh right? yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, for you know, sure, that's the name, yeah. Right, and that's like any it's any group breaking up, man. You know it's, the reason. Yeah, I bring this up because you know, um, being on the band, you know, it's easy to always say fuck the record company. But a lot of times, in some ways, yeah. But oh, but in reality, but the reality is this: the reality is this. Nobody makes you sign that contract when Madball got signed to roadrunner we got signed to what would be called the slave deal in the hip-hop game but you know what they did they offered us a deal and if we either decide to sign it or we don't decide to sign it and our lawyer who shout out to will shepler my brother willie but basically we got a our lawyer was a contract lawyer for like buildings he did our record deal. Yeah. So, cause we, the other thing. Get a fucking guy who knows the fucking, who knows yeah. the business. So again, we're, we're a hardcore band with no money, no, not, we don't, we're like, whatever. Like, okay, yo, I got a hook up. My friend's pops, his friend's a lawyer. What? All right, bring him. I never forget this. This is Madball signing to Roadrunner. It's basically the deal they have in the 101 Roadrunner book. You know, I love Roadrunner. I cannot hate on them because. What they gave us the most bullshit one-on-one deal, but we signed it. They said, look it, this is what it is. And I remember the lawyer looking at it, and this is a contract lawyer. He looked at it and kind of looked at it. He goes, well, it's a contract. <laughs> That's right. what he said. The implications of like, hey, Hoya, the return reserve is going to be 50%. Oh, for, I didn't even hear that word once. None of that. Right. But long hey, Hoya, what's the package deduction? What's your yeah, re-record restriction? Like, and here's the thing. When I first got a contract, right, when I started doing contracts with bands, which I started doing early on, very early on, even for the wild things are, I have one page contracts. They're simple as fuck, but they're easily spelled out. You're going to do this. I'm going to do this. That's it. Yeah. Right. When raw deal signed to in effect, they had like a fucking contract that was the size of a telephone book. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to steal this contract for me. <laughs> Because I don't know how to write a long-form contract. Uh, but what I do have is pretty decent reading comprehension. So I'm going to interpret every paragraph into normal fucking language. So I took pages of this bullshit. Wow. And I summarized it into a paragraph that was actually like, for every record you get a for every record sold you get a dollar off of this for this for every record sold you get this for this for every record sold you get this for this if you sell more than freaking 25,000 you get x amount more and i summarized this giant fucking bullshit laden document into something that was you know at least in my 19 year 20 year old head was elegant and reasonable 
And I used that template for probably a good 10 years, if not not longer. It changed over the years because there were certain things. But fundamentally, it was the same thing. And I was always upfront about how you have to do things. And I think fundamentally, there is one difference between at least the way I perceive the business. You know, there are some labels out there who have been sued for millions of dollars for sure who have been much more successful who've had an exit in the millions of dollars as well um you know but i would rather do my best to treat people the way i think they should be treated as opposed to just being you know purging the hardcore out of it entirely and being all about the money but record companies do fuck people over for sure no i i won't of course they 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 hide shit in the mix for sure but yeah. the reason why I say this because, again, we chose to get a bullshit lawyer. They told us this is the one-on-one. Basically, this is the thing they take out the one-on-one book for idiots, the, the example. But we were like, first of all, who the biggest metal label wants to sign us? First of all, they're crazy because who the fuck wants to sign us? This is what we're thinking. Number two, we're like, what will we make? Who the fuck is going to even care? So take whatever you want because we ain't nothing. We ain't nobody. This is what our mentality. Think about this. So the <clears> biggest <throat> thing that ever happened to me, and I use the word biggest in, in, in air quotes, is we got a deal with MCA Universal in the mid-90s. It was during that whole indie acquisition phase where every label was getting picked up and whatever. And I had a friend who I work with at Relativity, Sky Hans. Love that guy. And he fucking, he he fucking said, hey, do you want a deal? And I was like, whatever. So I'll tell you exactly what we got. We got $150,000 a year cash, an office space at 1755 Broadway, and a publishing admin deal that somebody would have to approve our publishing admin on. And that was like another 20 grand a year advance. It was like. Nothing. They got a whole label. Yeah, for sure. Get a baby artist for right. Yeah, yeah. It's not a, a big deal, but for us, we, we thought we were king of the world. King of the world. I hired like four guys to work for me. I put them everybody on fucking punk rock welfare because I paid everybody the same, including myself. <laughs> yeah, punk rock welfare. Yeah, it was, and we had a great time. Sheer Terror put out the only record that ever came out through MCA was Sheer Terror, the love songs for the unloved record. Probably the wrong band for them to have signed. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and it's no disparaging Sheer Terror's professionalism at the time, nor their songwriting. It was just yeah, that bad. Yeah, bad. They were unwilling to participate in the reindeer games that's necessary at that level of the business, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and they toured a lot, but they could have toured a lot on an indie record also, right? But the ultimatum that came to me was, you sign us to MCA or we're breaking up. Okay. Well, then I guess I'm trying to sign you guys to MCA. Um, so, you know, we we did that deal. And I learned a lot about industry politics from all the inner shenanigans that I saw happening at Universal. Yeah. I learned a lot about what that was. And it's the major label game is such a higher level 
of insanity compared to like being in a band and putting out indie records. It is night and day. It's apples and fucking aircraft carriers. It is two decidedly different fucking animals by 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 a by a wide fucking market. Yeah, it, 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 that whole thing bugs me out. Like, you know, you got to see it on on many levels. So it's kind of it's good to get that inside. But I also not that I want to give a record company the benefit of the doubt. I'll give them at least, you know, for once a little bit of props. But I know, again, it's you know, it, it takes two to tango sometimes. You know what I mean? And like, again, we signed our deal knowing what we were getting into, but we didn't think none of it. We didn't think we would last. But Well, that's also the thing is where. When I signed my MCA deal, I knew it was kind of not the deal that I wanted. But I figured I needed to strike while the iron is hot. Hell yeah. I saw what was in front of me, and I wasn't playing a long game. Yeah. I was in the same perspective as as I I signed their 101 deal the same way you signed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I totally know what you mean. Yeah. So... I completely feel it on everybody's thing because I was out of my depth. I had a good lawyer, but he also worked with them on 400 other things. So, like, was he really going to fucking go to the mat for a fucking shithead hardcore guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's going to make me kind of happy. He makes them happy. He makes the deal not so difficult for them. Yeah. I get a little bit of money. I get to hire all my friends for four years. Yeah, 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 yeah. And exactly. then they kick me out of my ass, and I steal about two years worth of office supplies. <laughs> and there you go. Hardcore lives. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've done all the jiffy packs and <laughs> and fucking staples and fucking all that shit that we stole leaving the oh the yeah office probably for another two years. I know that shit. How how crazy how music is just changed throughout the years you know how it's distributed how it's put out now forget putting out an album you put out singles you know you oh, put yeah. out your album in singles monthly pop, uh, uh, lyric video that's the first step now lyric video yep. you don't even gotta spend that i remember being on road run and the big talk was like because videos were the first brand new they're like yo i heard they just spent on uh, sepultura did a video where they had the gracie family and they're like yo i heard they spent 150 Grand on it, I was like, "Oh my god, for a video, hundred of wow!" Like I couldn't. And I remember when we, we got. First of all, I'm proud of Mabel for this. We never got dropped. We're the only band that never got dropped off Roadrunner. We left Roadrunner again. We were probably playing paying the toilet paper bill there. Not that we were paying anything, but I remember my mad love. I got love for them because even Monty was like, "You guys really want to leave? Like really? Because they had yo, you know." In, in numbers, we didn't put them, but we put them in props because we they had the realest motherfuckers on the label with us. That's just a fact. If you like this or not, you had some real gritty motherfuckers from the, the who live and were born in the trenches now under your umbrella. Right. But but I remember, you know, he was like, and we were like, he was like, what it is that you guys want? Now the music was it started becoming we needed a video kind of thing. It was that era. And we were like, but videos were still like movie money back then, you know, like that. And they were like, he was, oh, like, yeah. we can't. He was even like, yo, we can't give you that. And we were like, I hear you. And he was like, all right, if you guys want to walk, kind of all right. But, you know, it was love. We walked out of that contract, that one on one contract. We never had a blue grape deal like everybody. Listen, oh, Mabel, wow. this, listen, yeah. we were the fucking John Gotti of the Roadrunner family because we were untouchable. You know what I mean? 
But um, it's just funny. Labels, the whole shit. And that, let me ask you, what do you think to this day, how many copies do you think you sold of the of the the comp the, the compilation your first? If you if you had a what you think? The first compilation sold, I wanna say by calculations over the first couple of years, probably about 15, 20,000. Oh, and that shit sold ooh, ten times more than that since then. That sold, but been past the right. That's look at it. It's the well, that's what it's that's what it sold like in the first couple of years. And I stopped counting because I also because I was pressing new records, like and that was only on vinyl and cassette. Mm. I didn't. I don't remember how many I pressed on CD. I have no uh, idea. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right, because for the first three years it was out. The CD didn't really exist until like, I mean, realistically, 1991 is when CDs came down in price enough to actually, yeah. otherwise they were going to be $18.99 each. Yep. Fuck is going to pay $18.99 Crazy. for it. Right? And then you had to put them inside those stupid fucking cardboard things. Yeah, that whole right? shit. <clears throat> so by 92, I was starting to put out, but I had to do three formats. I had to do, you know, like the Iceman came out on fucking... CD, EP, cassette, LP, and seven. Singles, singles. Remember those? Oh, singles were a nightmare too. Single these nuts. Why? Why God? Why? Yeah, why? Yeah, why? Put the single out. Fucking crazy singles. That's some Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam shit, right? You there. know, you got the, the the A side and the B side, the long remix, the long version. I just remember buying a couple of like things like that, and like in my car, you put it on and you listen to the fucking thing like four hundred times, going back and forth. Oh yeah, that shit just goes. It'd be like, a, oh, we got the short eight minute remix, and there's the short version. <laughs> exactly. And, and fucking. But you know, like, listen, in hardcore music, as far as comp, listen, the records that are. A staple, and they're not a band. Well, one of them is a band, but it's not a studio record. It's AF Live at CBGB's, the 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 New York hardcore comp of Gus Straight Edge in the front. The, the I always forget, and then with the Wild Things. I mean, those go in with Victim and Pain. They go in with Brightside. They go in with the War Zone. Straight up, that is hard for me to reconcile. Right? Hands down, because. Like, I started out being a participant in the scene and being one of the junior kids in the scene. Yeah. Right? And, you know, it's it's to, to, to look at it from fucking 31 years later or whatever freaking horrible shit that we're, yeah, however yeah. freaking horribly old I am now, right? And think that this shit has lasted is a fucking miracle. Like, you know, none of us thought we would no. have any of this matter. For sure. Crazy. For, for, for that long. And if we knew, maybe would have talked about it differently, but maybe the energy would have been different and it never would have gotten here in the first place. Exactly. You know? It was because it was, you could tell it was brave, to do stuff for that, you had to be brave to be that age and to do something of that magnitude because people don't understand. People can't wake up on time to go to work, let alone get 20 bands to submit something and meet a quota and have a layout. And, and you know, you know, all these things, there's, there's a lot that comes with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's a lot. 
that record, like literally, when I think of albums, you know, I think, okay, don't forget the struggle, you know, Age of Quarrel, Murphy's Law, first record, you know, Victim of Pain, the two compilations, live at CBGB's, then everything else is whatever you want it to be. <laughs> it's just what it is. That's that's amazing to hear from from you who have such a, an accomplished body of work as well, right? I mean, you know, it meant a lot to me at the time because most of those bands were actually my friends. Yeah, crazy. Right? And it was a document. It was almost like my personal yearbook. It wasn't necessarily meant to be this explosive thing, but I knew that I wanted to put out a record. I had no idea it would turn into anything ongoing and i certainly had no idea that i'd be working in the fucking music business freaking now yeah crazy crazy you know what i just realized those compilations were the first hardcore mixtapes yeah yeah they were they were they, really mixed on vinyl yeah that's why i love them you know why i took pride in this and ezek's my witness because ezek was the motherfucker who bothered me the most when we were kids I, I was a hip-hop kid, so I took the elements of what I loved about hip-hop and I, I brought it into not only my songwriting, but in everything. So I would make, you know, my he's like, yo, make me a cassette, you know, hardcore cassettes. You know how you make, I got all the records, all right? So instead of dropping the whole Chromag record, the whole Warzone record, I put We Gotta Know, Power, I would and I would splice it really close so you almost had like a mixtape. Yeah. So easy, you know, they will always come. But that's what I loved about those comps. It was the best of. It was everybody's hardest hitters. And if you were yep. lucky, maybe two. They usually had one, maybe two. And it was like, oh, I'm getting their best shit or maybe a song that ain't on their record. And yep. now it's you can let the record play. And I was like, oh, man, this is like, you know, it was like, I don't know. To me, it was like it's a staple, like to have a compilation. That's like a hardcore staple. You know. Yeah, it, it's like when I go to a show and I hear like so many bands cover some of the songs that are on Where the Wild Things Are, oh, and yeah. like I hear somebody covering like The Hard Way. Oh yeah, you know? like why all did that, they? Yeah. The From the like, imagery, all the the sound, all these the same thing. Listen, I see Anthony. You know, obviously Raw Deal, I love them, but they played uh, Florida not too long a couple of years ago. I played with them. I wrote yo. The young kids still, they have those raw deal kids out there. The killing time kids are still there. There's those OG, those kids that really still love the OG shit. And they're the, my man, Chris Link, I love you from Terra, fucking crew hand. He's one of them, the younger generation, but he's a raw deal head. Like he's one of those guys, the guys from long, a lot of these younger generation, they, they should have been around then. Like, you know what I mean? They would have been going nuts. They're, they got they got old souls in that way, and they understand why. And oh. maybe it's part of their background. Maybe it's part of, like, how they grew up. Maybe it's yep. who introduced them to hardcore, oh. you know. <clears throat> but their experience seems very parallel yeah. to what I had even 30 years ago. So that's why they get it. Yeah, no, it's true, man. It's dope and um. And what are you doing now? What, what where's Bill Wilson now? What's your power moves now? People want to know what's up, Billy Wilson. What what is he doing? Where is he on the planet at this moment? So uh married, live in Jersey with my wife, and uh <laughs> we have four adopted pit bulls. There um, you go. Heavily into the animal thing. I am uh I'm not vegan, but I'm vegetarian. Um my wife is adamantly vegan. 
And, uh, and for, for a job, I worked at a bigger record company that does hip hop and does bigger metal acts and has a publishing company. And, you know, I do, I actually am the one who does the deals with Apple and Spotify and, and YouTube and all those other companies on behalf of my company. Um, so I understand how all this digital shit dope. work, you know, dope. and being a nerd actually has had some advantages in that way yeah. to be able to like live inside my head a little bit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then, you know, there was a time when blackout was not fun. And that was during the early part of the two thousands. Um, I had a bad deal with a recording studio partner who tried to steal the label from me basically. Um, and I essentially quit my own label uh, until he was extricated from it. Um, and I really didn't do jack shit until, and it, it was all up on iTunes and whatever it is, but the early days of digital, there was like no money in it at all, like zero. Yeah. And, <clears throat> but now with streaming, it's still kind of not the best, but I've started to get back into doing other stuff. So I'm repressing a lot of older catalog. Cool, uh, sure. Like I just put out the Redemption 87. Um, I did the Killing Time. I mean, the, the Killing Time, which I think I sent you. Yes. Oh, yeah. I got those those records. I forgot to tell you because we didn't get to go on. I have them oh. over there. Yeah, I was going to tell you. I got them right away. Hell yeah. Um, I put out the an, the outburst, which included the demo. So I expanded an LP. We did a an outburst tribute record that had Power Trip on it. I saw that. I remember that. Yeah, it was dope. Riley Riley unfortunately passed away, and it's the anniversary of Riley's passing. Actually, this coming week. Yeah. Um, and so because he like he and JoJo especially bonded, like they were like really good friends, like the old old school and new school. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. So it was, it was crazy. So that kind of shit still makes me happy. Right. And I get to like make the donuts. Yeah. You know, exactly. I, love, I still love getting the vinyl. Like, I, I you know, I, I was taking pictures. This is not just like me shilling, but like I was taking pictures for doing stuff. And like, I love making fucking vinyl that looks like this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I know what you mean. I, I love that shit to remember everything bigger, just. You could hold it, touch it, feel like it. Doctor, yeah. Right? You know, it's like, and it feels more real when it's there. And so when I run out of catalog, do I know if I'm ever going to do another band? Because I'm never going to be 20 again. Yeah. Right? Am I ever going to be that kid who's like friends and going to every show and like <laughs> driving H2O to one of their first shows in Philly with <laughs> a drum set in the back of my car? Yeah. The answer is eh, Probably um, not. Let me answer for you. No. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but you're still in the mix. That's all that matters. You know, we're, we're still in it. You know, like I tell people, we don't got to be doing the crucified on top of the crowd or chicken fighting to, to be represented. You know, we, we don't got to be at every hardcore show. You know, we, we still talk about it with pride. We still involved wherever we can. And when we do get involved with it, like you take pride in it. You want to. Still do you you doing stuff that you don't have to do because we it's we is what we are so it's we it's have to do it. Here. It's in here, yeah. right? We we it's have to right. do it. And like 
we started off this conversation talking about how real life gets in the way, but I've now incorporated my hardcore life into my adult life. And not too many people get to do that. I mean, look at the fucking fly. I had this flyer wall sitting behind me in my home amazing. office. Yeah, amazing. Right? And this is, you know, it's how I get to incorporate who I am and who I was as a kid into my adult life. And I don't have to separate it by all of a sudden starting to wear what other fucking 55 year olds wear, you know, pants up to here, fucking like grow a fucking. Look you know, at us. We like the exactly. Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck that. Young until I die, motherfucker. And exactly. that's really what it is. Guys like you doing what you did and doing what I do, it shows how much engulfed in this shit that we are, that we weren't in it for a fucking part time because we could have been out of this shit a long time ago, you know, and we would have had the reasons for it to leave this shit a long time. But we're still here. I started a line, part of my clothing line. That's a dope light, by the way, um, a, a called Lifer. And basically, I came up because me and Freddie and, and other people will say, yo, we're lifers in this shit. You know, whatever we do, we live it to the fullest. That's what you are. We're a lifer. I'm glad that there's people still like us who really love it and that we're around in the era that we could still talk about it and keep the, the history alive. And, you know, um, because we need to be, you know, our history aren't all our history isn't written in books. You know what I mean? Or on vinyl. So I'm yep. glad that we're still alive so people can hear this. It's on now that it's on this podcast, it's lasted, it's gonna last forever online. So it's always gonna be out there. And that's the folklore, right? That's the that's the language of the tribe, right? It's the stories that people tell. Exactly. It's been that way since the days when we were fucking in caves, and it's gonna be that way, you know, uh, 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 until uh until uh, doomsday happens. <laughs> exactly, and that's why, like I said, we're still in this shit to win it. Yeah, fuck yeah. Bill, I'm fucking glad I finally got you. Next time I want to get you on, and we're going to do you with my boy Jay Reason, and I want to do, uh, uh, get in a little bit more in-depth with the whole, behind, the label and that, that era, because he worked with labels and behind the scenes and management. I wanted to do a podcast on that to, Again, I, I want newer bands and newer people maybe wanting to get involved with the business, hear what's going on, and maybe, you know, it could help them in their future moves. I'm happy to do that. I, I want, you know, it, being involved in educating a lot of different, you know, newer people and people who may have questions, I want to tell them what's truth and what's bullshit, and I'm happy to do that. Exactly. And, and what I'm trying to do, I'm going to start um, live streaming some of my, my my podcast. And that's one I would like to live stream with you and, and Jay so people could ask questions because there's a lot of younger kids wanting to start a label, trying to, you know, or bands wanting to know what to look out for. So I think we could, you know, we could throw some stuff out there that might be able to help some new people, you know, people trying to get involved with the thing. But um, and who better than to get a motherfucking hardcore dude in the trenches? Bill. I'm fucking glad we finally made this shit happen. You know what's up. Killing Time is the greatest time. No, Raw Deal is the greatest band on the fucking planet. And guess who put, the, put them out? Blackout Records. Listen, go get everything Blackout. Go get everything this man pulls out. 
Well, I don't know if he pulls that out. You want to get it, but everything he puts out, I mean. <laughs> well, maybe you want to pull it out too. From what I heard, the Sicilians are a little. Oh, okay, that's another story. But listen, Bill, I love you. I'm glad we finally got to chop it up, and I'm gonna get you back. And anything you want to let people know before we out of here? Um, no, other than a salute to uh, the other man with the heavy eyebrows. <laughs> you already know we are the eyebrows of the fucking New York hardcore scene. But listen, shout out to everybody tuning in around the planet. Bill, I love you. You already know Blackout Records, Smoking Word Podcast. You know the deal. We out of here till next time. Yo, Bill, I'll let you know when we drop this shit. All right. I'll text you later. Awesome. Later, Hoya. Yo, peace out, everybody. We out of here. Bye.